Now, we talk about Abram as a man of faith. Uh, We talk of him as the father or one of the fathers of the faith. Uh, But the story of Abraham is a story not, not so much of a man of faith, but of God who is faithful. Not so much a man of faith, but God who is faithful. And that's really important to keep in mind. Uh, Even when we read of Abraham's good example and uh, his sometimes radical trust in God, it's worthy to be reminded that Abraham only gets his name in this book because God first called him. Uh, It's a story, even at Abram's best, it is a story of God's faithfulness. The only reason Abraham gets to exercise his faith, as costly and as, as extreme as it sometimes is, is because God first gave Abraham promises to believe. It is a story more of God's faithfulness than a man of faith. And if that's worth being reminded of when Abraham's doing well, uh, it's doubly worth keeping in mind when we read passages like today's where there is no clear human hero in the story. Today's passage, chapter 16, uh, reads something like uh, something out of a soap opera. Sarai, desperate to produce an heir, gives her servant to her husband as a surrogate. Abram, for any number of dubious reasons, agrees. Hagar, the servant, falls instantly pregnant and then she starts to get a bit smart and lippy with her mistress. And Sarai, the mastermind of the operation in the first place, then blames her husband for it. And then Abraham, our hero of the faith washes his hands of the whole situation and says, well, you do as you see fit. And we see what Sarah sees fit. She mistreats her servant who's been caught up in all of this, uh, so much so that Hagar flees. And in all of this, there isn't one person who clearly exercises faith at all. But God is faithful. Uh, And in this chapter, his faithfulness is surprising and somewhat subversive. Uh, God remains faithful to his earlier promises to Abraham and Sarah, even through their faithlessness, in spite of the sin uh, and the squabbling down below. Uh, And in this chapter, although God continues his pattern of goodness to his chosen man, Abraham, uh, in this chapter, God's clearest expression of kindness uh, and blessing is to the wretched and desperate Hagar, the slave woman uh, from Egypt, no less. And so we come back to the statement that this is not so much the story of a man uh, or a person or anyone of faith, but a story of God who is faithful. And it's my suggestion uh, that this is the truest and most helpful way to reflect on your own life as well. Uh, Maybe that comes easy to you to say, well, yes, my own life too is a story not so much of my faith, but of God's faithfulness. Uh, Because... Uh, Hopefully, if you're honest, your own lack of faith is easy to spot. Uh, uh, It's a matter of sheer wonder that God would give you his favour at all. That is only grace, only God exercising unconditional love. Because if it was conditional, he'd take it away. And we know it's unconditional. He gave us his son. When we see the world and our life like this, then praise comes easy. Isn't, isn't God good? He is so faithful. We are so undeserving, but he is so good to us. 
But that's not the only way we look at life, is it? So, like I, I admit it's not always easy to see life this way. Sometimes we forget God's faithfulness. Sometimes God's faithfulness is frankly difficult to spot in the chaos and the sometimes suffering of life. Sometimes we can even be left feeling like the reverse is true. Not so much that uh, I am faithless uh, but God is faithful, but the other way around, I've been faithful and God hasn't come good for me. I've tried my best, I've been faithful, why hasn't God shown me even a scrap of kindness in all of this? And without wanting to paper over the actual difficulties and circumstances that often lie behind that kind of feeling, uh, because I'm sure most of us have been there at some point or another, uh, I want to suggest that the first half of today's passage, where our players get themselves deeper and deeper into mess, the first half of our passage is actually a product of exactly that kind of thinking. Uh, People putting themselves higher and God lower instead of in the correct order where people recognise that this isn't a story of my faith or faithfulness or, or my benefits or my goodness or my skills, but a story of God's faithfulness. Instead, uh, the players turn it upside down and they lose sight of God's faithfulness. They, might, they perhaps even begin to question God's goodness and faithfulness and instead look to themselves. And it doesn't work out until God shows up again in, in his faithfulness. So to bring us up to speed so far, God has promised to bless Abraham and to make him the father of a great nation Uh, A great nation who will in turn bless all the nations of the world. But Abram and his wife Sarai are so far childless. And this has been going on for years now. Ten years at least in the land of Canaan. But they're very old. Uh, And they're not getting any younger. So it says in verses 1 and 2, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. We learn later that uh, it's ten years at least that they've been in Canaan since they've heard the promises. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. There's a lot going on here. Uh, first of all, there is uh, just the, uh, the shame of being barren. A shame that, uh, particularly in that day, uh, clung particularly to the wife. Even though up until this point there's, there's no clear knowledge of whether, uh, whether Abram uh, is able to conceive or not. Uh, not conceive, you know, whether he's able to get her pregnant or not. Uh, but the shame clings to the wife. Uh, there is no, though, there is in this no obvious indication here that Sarai's concern is for the fulfilment of God's promise to give them a son. Uh, Given the promises and the context, uh, it might have been in her heart somewhere that, you know, maybe in all of this, uh, we might see God fulfill his promise. But it's not really obvious in the passage itself. Her main concern seems to be not so much that the child of promise hasn't arrived, but just that there's no children at all. It's a more personal pain that comes uh, with that ongoing uh, difficulty of conceiving. Although, to be somewhat fair on Sarah, I, I imagine by the age of, uh, of uh, how old is she here, 70-odd um, or 80-odd, 
Uh, she probably had given up hope by this time of conceiving herself. Uh, and so maybe she's hanging on purely because of the promise that came. But she could have in all this been afraid of rejection from her own husband, that maybe he would uh, update for a newer, younger model. It wouldn't be the first time and it certainly wouldn't be the last. So it could be that she's eager to prove to her husband that she might be childless, but she's no prude. And so she gives him permission to take her servant into his bed. And we'll get to that in a moment. But first, let's look at something uh, interesting in her own words. She says, the words are up there on the screen, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, this could be the words of faith. It really could be. Uh, In keeping, for example, with the prayer, your will be done, which Jesus teaches us to pray, to say, whatever comes is, is the will of the Lord. And we accept whatever God gives us from his hand, whether it feels good or bad to us in the moment. This could be the words of faith. And it is absolutely essential that our faith allows us to recognize God's sovereign will in everything that comes our way, even the things we don't like. So Sarah saying that the Lord has prevented me, these could be the words of faith, but in this instance, they're almost definitely not. Because her actions don't seem like the actions of a woman resting secure in the perfection of God's sovereign will. This is the speech and actions of a person who thinks God has been unfair and unnecessarily cruel, who feels like she has been hard done by to leave her all these years with this sorrow. There is, I think, a tinge of anger and blame towards God. And so she has this bright idea to push her husband toward the bed of her much younger servant. Now, it's worth remembering, uh, as with a lot of stories you'll read in Genesis and and. And as you continue in the Bible, it's worth remembering that although it's in the Bible, uh, the taking of concubines or multiple wives uh, is in no way ever supported by God. In fact, the clear implication, if you read on, is that this is a recipe for certain strife, okay, certain strife. Uh, It's probably also worth mentioning that the passage is silent up to this point on Hagar's feelings about the arrangement. Maybe, maybe in the context of things, she was proud to bed her master for the place that uh, it might provide her in the household, uh, a place of status. But certainly, uh, with our modern eyes at least, but quite possibly back then as well, uh, the passing around of a servant girl for sex and surrogacy is pretty rank. There's every chance that Hagar is deeply upset by the arrangement. We don't know. But it's not good. It's not right. And let's look now at Abram's hand in all this. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. I mean, he is appallingly passive. He just listened and he goes along with it. And you have to ask what's in Abraham's heart going into all of this. We don't exactly know and speculation doesn't get us very far, but let's speculate. Maybe he's avoiding conflict. Maybe on his wedding day, some well-meaning or funny uncle shook his hand and said, let me tell you the secret to a happy marriage. Two words. Yes, dear. Oh, man. Maybe that's what he's doing. 
Maybe he's also doubting God's ability and will to keep his promise of a son, the promise that God made. Uh, maybe, maybe for Abraham, if he squints his eyes a little bit and he looks over the fence to what other families are doing in the same neighbourhood, uh, well, maybe this seems almost kind of like a legitimate arrangement where, yeah, household means more than just immediate family and maybe, maybe this is a legal, legitimate way of raising an heir. It certainly uh, wasn't, wasn't actually unheard of. So other people were getting up to it. Maybe it's as simple as this. Old Abraham has the opportunity to sleep with a young, submissive, exotic woman. And apparently his wife's cool with it. He's got a hall pass. And probably, as we speculate, there's some combination of some or all of the above. Like I said, speculation doesn't get us very far. But it gets us this far at least, having speculated somewhat as to what Abraham's possible motives could have been it's pretty hard to find any good in it wherever you land there's no good in there this is human weakness to the fore and those words at the end of verse 2 pack a punch especially when you think about where we've heard this before abram listened to his wife let me give you a few clues as to where you might have heard this before it's okay if you don't get it yourself because I'll spoil it myself at the end. But have a think. Have you heard this before? There is a woman who has begun to think that God has been unfair to them and unkind. She comes up with her own way, against God's will, to obtain what her own eyes desire. She passes the, let's metaphorically call it, the forbidden fruit to her husband, who meekly does as he's told. The author of Genesis, probably Moses, has almost certainly deliberately written chapter 16 as a copy of Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit in the garden. A problem that stemmed, remember, from the serpent causing Eve uh, to question God's goodness, just as Sarai says, the Lord has prevented me, blaming God. Then Eve takes matters into her own hands, taking the fruit, and Sarai takes her servant, and each of them pass what they've taken into the hands of her husband, who takes for himself. And the husband obeys. Chapter 16, verse 2, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, almost perfectly mirroring Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, uh, God's accusation to Adam, you have listened to the voice of your wife. Not, by the way, to say that men shouldn't listen to the voice of their wives, but merely to draw a parallel between uh, what is the most damning event in human history in Genesis chapter 3 to what's just been copied and repeated again and again in the life of uh, Abram uh, and others. Now, you can read Genesis chapter 16, what we've read today, and learn everything you need to learn from it without needing to see the parallels with Genesis chapter 3. But what the deliberate parallel does serve to highlight is that not only are Abram and Sarai's actions murky on their own merits, the link with Genesis 3 proves that we are to read their actions as sin, which at its heart, sin, which at its heart is the turning backwards of our heading 
man's faith or God's faithfulness. A questioning and an undermining in the heart of whether God is faithful and good and the pursuit in our own strength to overthrow his rule and do things our own way. As I've said, I don't think, by the way, that the main point of all this is that men shouldn't listen to their wives. However, Genesis chapters 16 and Genesis chapter 3 do support the rest of the Bible's message that both husbands and wives should embrace the man's role as head of the home. As well as supporting the husband's duty to lead the home, uh, these support the husband's duty to lead the home with gentleness, love and wisdom. And these chapters give insight into the dangers that can follow when this order is subverted. Uh, But there is an opposite danger, of course, to avoid. When a husband rules his wife like a tyrant and never recognises her needs and never listens to her wisdom. That would be the opposite error to make. But let's have these passages remind us, husbands, don't be the damp squib in the house. Have some purpose demonstrate some integrity and some strength and some moral character. Take a lead in promoting faithfulness and integrity and keeping order in the home. And let's have these passages also gently remind wives to honour their husbands and support them. But the point of this passage is truly much more than advice for an orderly marriage. It's a reminder of mankind's lack of faith. That with the passage of time since Adam and Eve ate the fruit, Abram and Sarah do no better, and we do no better now. We repeat the same mistakes. The thing that keeps us most securely in God's hand isn't our faith or faithfulness, it is God's faithfulness to us. The story progresses. Abram, it says, he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. I said before we can't know Hagar's feelings exactly about the arrangement. Um, uh, The fact that she gets smug after her pregnancy starts to show doesn't really reveal that she was happy about all this in the first place. It might just be that she's taking the one small delight that she can out of this arrangement. She holds this new power over her old mistress. Uh, The passage, I have to say, leads us to want to be pretty gentle on Hagar as a whole. It is much more damning on Abram and Sarai. They particularly are expected to know better. The passage does lead us to want to be pretty gentle on Hagar. But we do see some evidence, even though we're not led to expect that she demonstrates any exact faith in in Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham. We do see some evidence that she gets caught up in this upside-down view of her own worth versus God's faithfulness. She was looking at herself with pride, Uh, Instead of seeing the gift that she's been given of this child as evidence of God's goodness, she sees it as evidence of, or she weaponises it against her mistress as some sort of evidence of her own strength or goodness. Looking at her fertility to be a thing that makes her glad. It's a trap to look at the gifts that you've been given without effort or uh, without earning them It is a trap to look at the gifts that you've been given as as a point of pride and not as a point of praise. Maybe uh, it's got nothing to do with childbearing uh, because this can be other things as well. When we look at our God-given gifts or abilities, particularly the ones we did nothing 
to gain or grow and we use those things to stroke our egos or to look down on others, uh, then that is a trap. People put all sorts of stock in physical beauty, which, you know, there's things you can do to cultivate it, but there's only so much you can do and some people just have it. Natural abilities, whether it be uh, athletic or other skills, inherited wealth, which people use to look down on others. Uh, Fertility is just another in the list, and it's a nasty one. It's easily weaponised against people who are hurting, who have equally done nothing to earn the trial that they're facing. When things go well for us, particularly when it's obvious that they're things that we didn't earn, that we were just granted or born with, This should be a point of praise to a God of undeserved kindness instead of something that we use to build up our own goodness or faithfulness or as as evidence that we're somehow worth it or better. In this passage, Hagar, instead of turning her gift to praise God for his faithfulness, she turns it instead to praise for herself and she weaponizes it against Sarai. But like I say, I want to be pretty gentle on Hagar. <laughs> it says in verses 6 and 7, Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she'd conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her. And she fled. And we see here again shadows of Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sin, the fruit that was supposed to be sweet turns out to be a double-edged sword that hurts them. When Abram and Sarai achieve the hoped-for conception of a child, I mean, the, the plan goes swimmingly, exactly as they hoped. But it turns out to bring pain and mistrust in the home. When Adam and Eve get found out for their sin and they stand before God, they play the blame game. They do anything but take responsibility or repent. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the snake. Here, Sarai blames Abram for having gone along with what was her idea in the first place. And Abram again shirks responsibility by telling Sarai to do whatever she wants. Again, uh, if we take, you know, you know, passive, pathetic Abraham a little bit further forward, this man who, uh, faced with a quandary and, and a possibility of some blame falling on his shoulders, who, as I said, metaphorically washes his hands of events, we see in the New Testament the character of Pontius Pilate, who when he has Jesus on trial, a man who he knows to be innocent, but he's... He's, he's in a bind, he doesn't know what to do. He chooses the path of passivity. He lets the crowd decide. He goes along with it and literally washes his hands of the consequences. Choosing to be passive is still choosing. It's still picking a side. It's pathetic and at times downright wicked. I'm 
I'm going to fly through just these last little bits. It's really hard to know, for me at least, exactly what to make of all these events then uh, in the second half of the chapter when, uh, when uh, the angel appears to Hagar in the wilderness and makes all these promises. But these promises that mirror in so many ways the promises uh, made to Abraham. Uh, made to the promised line from Abraham down, although this turns out to be not the promised line. But here's what happens. She goes into the wilderness uh, and an angel appears to her, repeats all these promises and her response in verse 13 is this. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. In the name of her son that's given as well, Ishmael, uh, we're told that that means God hears. God is a God of hearing as well as a God of seeing, a God who hears distress, a God who sees distress. And it's worth being reminded, I think again for a moment, that when we are told that God is a God who watches over us, that God sees and knows all things and that there's nowhere we can escape from his presence or his eye, it's worth remembering that this isn't like a big brother kind of thing or the eye of Sauron or this sort of, you know, all-seeing, manipulating kind of thing that you can't escape from. But this is an eye that is watching over you in kindness to care for you, to see suffering and pain uh, and to respond. That is the way uh, we are meant to understand this being framed, that God is a God who sees all things. Surely he is a God of seeing. And it says at the end of the chapter then, Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So God is still in all of this somehow faithful to Abram. God has remained faithful even while his people have been faithless. One way of understanding, by the way, I, I sort of said it's, it's hard to know how to understand exactly uh, how to frame all of this second half of the chapter. One way to understand it is to go back to the promises originally made to Abram, that God would bless Abram. And God would bless all nations through Abram. And here we have an Egyptian woman being blessed ultimately in the end in Abram's household. Being driven back to the shadow and protection of being uh, in the presence of God's people to whom blessing will flow and, and then overflow. We see that... Um, we see that through proximity to Abram's line and because of God's promise to Abram that Hagar as well, although it's all sort of messy, her and her offspring as well will receive this blessing. One way to understand all of this sort of offshoot, because uh, that is what it is, it, we, we reach the true son later, is to see that just a continuation of God's promised unconditional blessing to Abram and to the nations through him. It's a story not so much of man's faith, 
but of God's faithfulness. What's the answer, though, when God seems to be not faithful? What is the answer when, uh, when it's suffering, when we are struggling? What's the answer uh, when we cannot see the good in the circumstances that God's given? There's a couple of answers, but the answer, uh, in the context of Abram's story at least, seems to be time and perseverance. It says at the end of the chapter that Abram's 86 years old. And God continues to say, no, you will have a son, a proper son. You and Sarah will have a son. And it's actually not until he's 100, it's another 15 years down the line before he gets that son. It is time and perseverance and patience. The only thing that we are guaranteed to experience in this life as people of God is trials. That is the only thing we are guaranteed, that we will face trials of many kinds. Now, we can avoid trials of many kinds by following God, by pursuing His wisdom and behaving uh, in faith and not taking shortcuts and not subverting Him and His will and His design. We can avoid a great deal of pain. That's not at all insignificant. We can experience in knowing God joy through all kinds of trials. That stuff is all there as well. But there is no guarantee that your life is going to be good or easy or smooth sailing. There is no there is a guarantee that God will produce good things from every evil thing. But there's no guarantee that you will see that good thing in your lifetime. But God will remain faithful. You know, they say that the definition of insanity is to do the same thing repeatedly, expecting different results. Well, I guess that's where faith becomes irrelevant. Uh, not irrelevant, irrational. Because we are asked in this life to keep exercising the same faith in the same way again and again with no guarantee of immediate results, only a guarantee of future fruit and results we are required we are asked to be faithful and persevere the only answer in all of this is time and patience and faith in the historic goodness and the promised goodness of God it's a story not so much of man's faith but of God's faithfulness so I close just with these words from 2 Timothy. These are the words we open the service with today. If we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. The story of Abram, the story of our life, is not so much the story of faithful, good enough people, but the story of a God who is faithful. Let's pray. God, as we wait the final fulfilment of your promise of blessing to all nations, of the elimination of pain and sorrow and death, 
and injustice. Uh, we wait with patience. Uh, we plead for your perseverance. Uh, we need your spirit. And we pray that as we wait, you'll help us to stay the course. Uh, you will help us uh, in strength and perseverance and in uh, apparently irrational faith to keep on doing the same thing day in, day out, trusting in you and your promises, obeying you and following your ways. We pray that uh, from chapter 16 of Genesis, at least the story of Abram and Sarai would be a cautionary tale, a way to not live. Um, but we thank you uh, that even in this, uh, we see again a God who is faithful, uh, unconditionally so. And we pray that you'll help us to, uh, to trust you in all things. Amen.